Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. This is Katie Weaver. I am here with my co-partner in crime, Christy Brower. Hello. Hello. Hey everybody. Excited to be back here with you for another awesome episode of True Crime Paranormal. Absolutely. You know how it goes. How are you doing? I do. I am doing well. I'm recovering from a pretty amazing camping trip over the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the tannest I've been in several years, which makes me really happy. Um, I, I did wear sunscreen. I want you all to know, but I still got tan. Um, just had a great, really super fun weekend. Floated the river three times. As a person with rheumatoid arthritis, I was really proud of myself that I could even still do it. I know you are too. Um, Really just, it was really nice. I hardly even looked at my phone. Every once in a while I'd upload some pictures or something, but I really just unplugged and got away from it all. And it was really nice. I needed it. Mm -hmm. It was really great. It was. And yeah, we we floated down the Snake River, which... uh, if you guys uh, have ever been in our area, the Snake River is an absolutely stunning place. And mm-hmm. we camped at a place that's one of our favorite places on the planet. And it was just really wonderful. It wasn't crazy hot, which for the fourth is pretty amazing. But yeah. Yeah. We loved it. So. Yeah. It was beautiful. And the sunsets and the sunrises and everything over the water were just fantastic. And mm-hmm. it was great. Yeah. While we were gone, however, there was uh, quite a crisis in your neighborhood and you you already knew so I, I wanted okay. to share that now I as a psychic have often had um you know precognition prophetic dreams that kind of thing of many times but I had a dream last night that my neighbor's house burned down and I woke up feeling kind of panicked realizing we're camping I'm not at home to check on my own house and then I checked my phone and there was a news alert that in fact a neighbor just through the block behind us house did in fact burn down Yeah. Just, you know, I have been doing this kind of work for a long time. I've been a psychic my whole life. It still freaks me out sometimes that I'm like, Mm -hmm. holy shit, I knew that happened. When we came home from camping, we drove around the block to see the house. And oh, my goodness, I just, my heart goes out to those folks. Fortunately, they did all get out safely. They lost, they lost a dog. Um, uh, But all the people in the house got out safely. What I was reading is that two dogs got out of the house and are currently missing like ran oh, um, which I'm really hoping that they're found and that you know somebody's picked them up it's it's a very residential neighborhood full of dog lovers like there's dogs in every backyard in this neighborhood so I bet somebody will find them and, and probably even recognize where they go you know yeah but it's just so sad I would just feel heartbroken for those folks but what an yeah. experience as a psychic sometimes it scares the hell out of you and this one did I was like god maybe we need to get right home and make sure our house is okay Mm-hmm. And it was not, you know, it was on the same block that we're on one street over. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't super close to our house, but you know, you just, whew, yeah, yeah. That one got me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Wow. I'm so glad they got out. Really me hope too. that their dogs make it back home to them. Oh, wow. Me too. But it looks like the house is a total loss. Uh, yeah. It's the windows are all blown out. The whole front of the house is black and it, it's awful. It just feels so terrible for them. Oh boy. Wow. Well, lots of love to them, but I wanted to just yes. share that because that's the kind of uh, experiences that you and I both have on a regular basis. You know, it's just a part of a day our life. in the life of a psychic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we see, you know, psychics get maligned, you know, a lot and that's fine. I mean, I'm not here to make anybody believe anything. I, all I know is 
me and what I know, you know, and we've talked a lot about the unethical behavior we've seen out of some people that, you know, are psychic or claim to be uh, mm-hmm. just like any other industry, you know, right. but we always try to be as absolutely, you know, genuine and honest as we possibly can be. That's a huge part of our process, our goal, you know, and so right. we, we do hold ourselves to the highest ethical standards that we can. And, you know, and that also means sometimes that we know things about people that we would never share to them or anyone else. Right. You know, it's there are things that you, yeah. there are boundaries. There are most definitely boundaries. Yeah. And we've had a lot of you guys asking about um, psychics reading various cases. It's, it's a very specific one. And we are going to talk about it later on. But um, we just always want to make sure that you guys know that our goal in life, our path has always been healing and helping. And mm-hmm. dipping our toes into crime has been a pretty new uh, venture for us. We've worked in crime behind the scenes. We've We've taught you know, like forensic mediumship and things like that for years. Mm-hmm. But to do something this public, we haven't done this before until just recently no. and just felt very called to do so. Yeah. But we will always hold ourselves and each other at in an ethical place of not hurting people intentionally, not, uh, you know, being out of line. That That's my hope. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I think that that's just always important and, and to, important to remember what our goal is, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and it is to help and to heal and to bring closure and, you know, to shed light yeah. on things. And, and, and that's all that we're here to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we educate do where we can. Very much. Yeah. And educate where we can. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because we have a lot of experience in these areas to talk about and a lot of experience, you know, honestly, I have a lot of experience with the legal system as a social worker. Yeah. And so it helps with these um, criminal cases that we do because there are a lot of things I understand about, about the legal system. Well, certainly. So, yeah, yeah. It's been, it's a lot of fun to bring all of that together and do what we do. Yeah. We're, we're loving every second of it. So sure. with that in mind, Christy, I have a case for you. Yes. This is one of those Ready episodes. Ready with my pen and paper. Yes. This is one of those episodes where I am going to present a case to Christy. Christy's going to code read it and we'll talk about it. So this is the case of Dorothy Jane Scott. Okay. Okay. Dorothy Jane Scott. She was born April 23rd, 1948 to Jacob and Vera Scott in Anaheim. Did you say 48 or 28? 48. 48. Mm-hmm. Born in California. Yep. Okay. So she grew up uh, in the 60s. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she was one of those, according to her parents, that was uh, kind of a hippie, kind of a freedom fighter, you know, fighting for women's rights, fighting for uh, for social rights. You know, she was for civil rights. You know, that's the kind of girl she was. However, uh, she was kind of an introvert and eventually kind of withdrew from that kind of life. Uh, in 1976, she had a son. She was a single mom. And it looks like the dad, he if he was in the picture at all, it wasn't for very long. He uh, he lived 2,000 miles away in Missouri. And there, there didn't seem to be much of a real connection there. They were never married. But uh, she did have a child named Sean. So, and that was in 1976. So... She was living about 20 minutes out of Anaheim in Stanton, California with her aunt. And she was working at her father's former business. 
So when she was a kid growing up, her dad had a store called Swinger's Psych Shop. <laughs> uh-huh. Swingers what the hell is Psych that? Shop. I mean, it, I my mind is erasing. <laughs> but. Well, they, it, it sounds like my kind of shop. They sold love beads, incense, lava lamps, a real woodstocky kind of place. Kind of a hippie, a hippie shop. Mm-hmm. And he had sold it to another guy, uh, to somebody who owned a, another store next door called Custom John's Head Shop. <laughs> now I know mm-hmm. what that is. Okay. Yeah. So we have the head shop and we have the psych shop that are next door. So, but she continued to work there after her dad sold it as the backroom secretary for these two businesses. So, you know, okay. she's in her early thirties. She's a single mama with, okay. you know, this one little boy lives with her aunt. And while she works her, she takes her little one to her mom and dad's house and they watch him while she goes to work. So this is her life. Uh, her friends say that she was extremely dependable and organized. She was really put together uh, one of her friends said that her life was basically like reading a home book. Uh, it was very boring. <laughs> she went to work well, and she went that, home and she was a mom. That was basically that kind it. of life when you have a young child. Uh-huh. Yep. She had also become very committed to a Christian faith and was deeply religious. And so it was kind of just being a mom and working and going to church. And that was basically her life. She Now that's an interesting twist though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. From the hippie life. Yeah, I thought so. But she found Jesus, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Yep. So that was her life. But she wasn't her friends claim she really wasn't a partier and her aunt that she lived with. She really wasn't a partier. She wasn't a big drinker. She just, you know, that just wasn't the life she had. So that that'll be important later on. Okay. So at any rate, she there was nothing very interesting about the day, but it was on May 28th, 1980. She dropped her little one, Sean, off at mom and dad's house and went over to Swingers and worked for the regular day. And then she had a meeting, a staff meeting at Swingers that night at 9 p.m. So she had told her parents she would be late picking up Sean because she had a staff meeting. So during the staff meeting, one of the other employees was looking really sick. His name was Conrad Bostron. So Conrad was looking sick. He had a big red swelling on his arm that needed medical attention. And she's looking at that and another coworker going, uh, Conrad, there's something wrong with you, <laughs> you know? And so Pam Head and Dorothy left the meeting early to take Conrad to the hospital. So she actually stopped by her parents' house to let them know that she was doing this and that she'd be back later to pick up little Sean. Now, remember, there was no cell phones. This is 1980, so there's no right. cell phones or anything like that. So she had to stop and let them know. Sure. Interestingly, she had had a black scarf on all day at work and a black scarf on at the meeting. And for whatever reason, while she was at mom and dad's house, she changed into a red scarf. And that'll be important later. Just, just dropping that now. Uh, so they went to the hospital and they went to UC Irvine Medical Center. And Dorothy and Pam said, or Pam says that they sat in the waiting room and waited for Conrad, what turned out to be a spider bite. Now, I will say that Looking through Reddit, somebody said that the drug culture 
back then was that uh, a, a bad injection site a lot of times would be called and coded as a spider bite to protect a patient. So Gotcha. So it was code. Got it. So they, they did say it was a black widow bite, but there was some suspicion there or wondering, you know, if that, if that really was what it was, but that was the story. So they waited the whole time. Pam said that she did uh, run to the bathroom quickly, but other than that, they sat in the lobby and, read magazines and visited for a couple of hours while he was with the doctor. Mm-hmm. So he was treated, given a prescription and he and Pam went to have that filled. So then Dorothy's told them that she'd go get the car and pull it up to the front of the hospital, you know, to pick up the thick guy. Right. Mm-hmm. And they, that was the last time they saw her. So she drove a 1973 white Toyota station wagon. And they were watching and watching at the hospital entrance about 20 minutes later. And I mean, this should have been like a five second thing, you know, right. They're getting a little annoyed. Like, seriously, what are you doing? You know? Right. Suddenly they see her car come speeding towards them. Um, Now, remember, this is like 11 o'clock at night by now ish or a little later. Mm -hmm. And, The car drives right past them, just blinds them with their headlights and just goes right on, sped right past them and just took off. And they were so confused because this wasn't like her to just like blow them off and take off like that at all. This wasn't who she was at all. And they thought, okay, well, maybe she had an emergency. Maybe she had to run, do something. Maybe she, who knows, right? So they were actually waiting at the hospital for a few hours to wait to see if she was going to come back for them. She did not. They finally called her parents from the hospital and asked if she had showed up there. She had not. Mm. So they called the police. They also talked to the uh, security guards at the hospital and let them know what happened. And basically the police were like, well, I mean, you know, she's an adult. Maybe she just had a date. Maybe she had had enough of you two, you know, Mm -hmm. know, but she had the right to leave the hospital so they didn't really take it seriously. They didn't do anything. How many times have we heard that? Too many. Yeah. Too many. So about 4.30 a.m. on May 29th, so this is around five-ish hours from the time she was last seen, her mm-hmm. car was discovered in Santa Ana. So Santa Ana was about 10 miles away from the medical center. Okay. And her car was discovered in an alleyway in flames. So she was not in the car there. Her belongings were in the car, but she was not. Uh, The police now are taking this seriously. Yeah. They waited all that time. So that's how she disappeared. But what you have to know is what happened before she disappeared. Okay. Several months before she disappeared, she started receiving some really creepy phone calls. I want to show you something. Okay. Um, Because I wrote this at the top of my notes here. You probably can't see it and it might be backwards. No, it's not backwards. See what I wrote right here? Obsession. As you were giving just basically her bio information, this is the word that just kept coming to my head. So I wanted to show you that before you tell me what I already am pretty sure you're going to tell me. Okay. She had been getting phone calls for about five months. She said it was from an unknown man, but the voice sounded familiar. 
She just mm -hmm. had, couldn't quite place where he was from. He would call her at work and at home. He knew both numbers. He would tell her how much he loved her and wanted to be with her. Sometimes he would tell her he wanted to kill her and get very abusive. He would tell her things that only somebody who was watching her would know about where she was, what she was wearing, what she did over the weekend, things like that, that um, obviously she had a stalker. Mm -hmm. um, so he told her at one point, Vera, her mother said at one point, uh, he told her that he wanted to chop her up into little bits so no one would ever find her. So she was really afraid. Now, one of the questions I have is, were those reported to the police? I don't have any evidence that they were, or if they were, they weren't taken seriously. But you know, she was, I'm trying to remember when stalking laws actually went into effect in the U.S. They and not I don't think that they were at the time. I used to work in domestic violence, and so I should know this, but I don't think stalking actually like became a okay. thing that the legal system could do anything about until maybe the mid-90s or even later. Okay. So That actually rings true to me. Yep. I don't think that there was anything that they could have done, yeah. even if they had reported. Well, and again... Even now, is stalking is horribly yeah. hard to prove. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she was afraid. She didn't feel safe at work or at home anymore. She was watching mm -hmm. her back all the time. She actually started taking self-defense classes to try oh, to wow. defend herself. And so only a week before she died, she also had seriously considered purchasing a gun mm -hmm. and had talked uh, in depth with her family about maybe buying a gun. And uh, she was actually anti-gun, but was still thinking about a gun because she was so freaked out by this guy. Um, and eventually talked herself out of it because she was worried that she really wouldn't know how to use it. And perhaps it would just be used on her. And she had a young child in her home mm -hmm. and felt like it would be irresponsible of her to bring a gun into her house. So she had not done that. So after she disappeared, the phone started ringing at mom and dad's house, Jacob and Vera's house. About a week after she disappeared, Vera was home alone. She received a phone call from a man who said, are you related to Dorothy Scott? And Vera said, yes. And he said, I've got her and hung up. Oh. So the authorities are searching, but they have absolutely no idea. They don't know what happened. They don't know who got her. That phone call was their very first clue, but they didn't, there was very little to go on. So the police had instructed them not to go to the media, mom and dad, not to go to the media about Dorothy's disappearance because they didn't want it to negatively impact their investigation. Mm -hmm. So about a week after they had searched and there was no progress and they were very frustrated with law enforcement, Jacob gave up waiting and he called the Orange County Register about his daughter's disappearance. So the paper ran a story about mm -hmm. her disappearance. And, you know, these are desperate parents asking people, have you seen something? Have you seen our daughter? You know, right, right. That's what they are asking. They want people to know she's mm -hmm. out there. She's missing. So they ran a story on her and the circumstances surrounding her disappearance. Well, then the editor of the newspaper, a gentleman named Pat Riley, had a phone call from a man who said, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. 
I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. He also detailed certain pieces of information with the editor that only someone who was involved in her disappearance would know. For one, he knew she was wearing a red scarf. And that was uh, an interesting note because she had worn a black scarf all day until she had gone to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So only people who had seen her after she had gone home would have known that. Now, her family was totally baffled because she didn't have a boyfriend and really hadn't had a boyfriend. And so they were really confused about that statement that she had cheated on someone because she didn't have someone to be cheating on. Um, You know, she was very busy. She was working both, you know, for both the head shop and the psych shop doing all of their books and whatnot and taking care of a child. And that's really all she was doing. Mm-hmm. And the aunt she was living with had verified that as well. There, she wasn't going on dates. There were no men calling, no men coming around. So the boyfriend lead seemed pretty dead. So he started calling every Wednesday afternoon. Every single Wednesday afternoon, he would call and Vera would answer the phone and only when Vera was home alone. If Jacob was there, he didn't call. They Mm. noticed a pattern there. If Vera was there, he'd call. If Vera and Jacob were home, he did not call. So he did call one evening when Jacob was there four years later, and Jacob answered the phone, and he didn't call anymore. The police had been there. They tried to track the calls, but he only said a few words. Mm -hmm. Just enough for them to know it was him. He would either ask for her, he would call and say, is Dorothy there? Or he would call and say something like, I killed your daughter. And that was it. And then he'd hang up. And so tracking it was impossible. Mm-hmm. Again, 1980, right? right? Yeah. Certainly the technology to to uh, track that call would not have mm-hmm. been as good um, as it is now. And even now, I think you still need a certain amount of time. But so you the, cell towers, and I don't know. Anyway, there's a lot of that. Yeah. So the case went cold. Um, They did uh, investigate a man named Dennis Terry, who was the father of her little boy, Sean, but he was in Missouri at the time of her disappearance. So he was definitely totally cold, not him. There was a man who came up. I don't know. I'm kind of tempted to just let you stop here and let you read it. And then, well, actually, I should probably tell you about her being found. We should do that. Okay. There, there, There was, there's an internet suspect, not that the police ever actually considered him a suspect that but internet sleuths have okay so there is that but i think um i'm gonna go further uh and talk about her being found first so on august 6th 1984 so this is four years and a few months from the time that she disappeared human bones and dog bones were discovered side by side about 10 meters from santa Ana anna canyon road in a remote construction site so the dog bones, we're not really sure why they were there or if they're connected to her or if they just happened to be there too. There's really no, that there was nothing on that. But uh, they did uh, run dental records and about a week after the bones were found, they did uh, determine that the remains really were Dorothy. So they also discovered a turquoise ring and a watch at the scene, which were hers, her mother uh, identified as her belongings. So it brought her family some closure, except for that they don't know. They still don't know. 
The individual that was calling did not stop. He continued to call for a few more years after that, not quite so regularly, but he continued to call for a while. Wow. So yeah, pretty, so it's been more than 40 years now. And what the hell happened to Dorothy? Her, her parents have never known. So that's, those are the details of the case. Um, okay. Yeah. So. So. Okay. I'm going to kind of work this backwards, but when he said that she cheated on him, mm-hmm. she had created, she had developed a male friend at church. They weren't dating, but they were talking like at church. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was something that this person who was stalking her would know because they were following her, mm-hmm. but there was someone she was talking to just friends with, you know? Um, but I do feel that, you know, very fragile ego, very sick, mind here could first of all in their mind had a relationship with her to begin with which he didn't um and then could see her any connection she had with other men as being cheating but i do feel that she had um a male friend at church just somebody that she'd been talking to uh-huh. uh this person this person was a customer of the head shop and psych shop but they were also connected because they were friends with the owners of the head shop This was someone that the owner of the head shop talked to frequently, told stories about his employees, talked about, oh, we have the staff meeting tonight at nine, you know, just random off the cuff stuff in conversation that he had no idea that he was actually feeding this man information that he could use against Dorothy. It's why he knew where she was that night. It's why he knew where, how to follow her to where she was going it was like the owner's best friend kind of a situation where this was somebody you talked to all the time and he was just always giving him the update on what was happening with his business and what was happening with his employees. And so he, it was not anybody, it wasn't someone anybody ever suspected because this person has flown under the radar forever. Nobody knows that they're a psycho stalker killer, but they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how the information was passed to him for him to you know, and just in passing, oh, yeah, you know, our our bookkeeper, Dorothy, you know, she has a little boy and she leaves him at her parents' house. And, you know, I mean, just mm-hmm. stuff like that mm-hmm. that got shared and this person had been around her in the business, to, it, you know, in order to become obsessed with her. And then he just used his in with the owner to get information. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think even now that no one realized they were passing information along to a murderer. It just doesn't, it, it, this is a person no one would have suspected. Um, I think that the dog was actually that person's dog. I think that they had buried their dog there and thought, Hey, I've already used this spot once. This is convenient. I actually do think they are connected. Not, not that they died at the same time, but that they were buried by the same person. Um, I do feel like this person, you know, obviously really got something out of terrorizing her her family and her parents. Um, he kind of screwed himself over because by killing her, he lost his connection to her. And so he maintained it by calling particularly to speak to her mother who sounded like her and who sort of felt still felt that connection to her by making those calls. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I absolutely. The son's father had nothing to do with it in the least. Mm-hmm. Um I do feel he held her for a while, not very long though. I I feel like he didn't hold her for more than a a couple of weeks. Um, 
he's a pretty rage filled individual. And so I, I feel like he didn't, that the intent was to keep her longer, mm-hmm. but in her attempts to get away, mm-hmm. um, he ended up having to kill her. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is going to get solved. I got to say, I don't feel like that it will ever be solved. I'm not, I kind of actually don't think that the perpetrator is still living. He was, was significantly older than her. And I feel that he's passed. Okay. Um, that, that was my hint as well. Yeah. He's, he's not even alive. I feel like the, the phone call stopped when he died. Right. Yeah. That's what stopped him. He was never caught. I don't feel that this was the only thing he ever did. Um, the only crime he ever committed, but he was never caught. He's one of those really charismatic. Everybody loves him. He's everybody's favorite guy kind of people who is internally a psychopath. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel like anybody in his life would have ever even suspected him. And I mean, he took a huge risk in making those phone calls, a huge risk. Mm -hmm. If that were to happen now, he would be caught Mm -hmm. making those. He would, that would be a huge screw up. But back at the time that this was all going on, um, they just didn't have the technology to track him. No, no, for sure not. Why that night? Um, I do feel like he was uh, enraged that she helped the coworker. This was another man that she was mm-hmm. assisting, and that was a problem for him. He did not like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like he had been uh, things had been escalating for him already because of whoever this was that she was talking to at church. Mm-hmm. That he was aware of that, and then now she's helping this other guy, and that just is fueling this rage and you know this belief that she's cheating on him. Um, also it was a, he just saw an opportunity, you know, she walked out of that hospital alone to go to her car. Mm-hmm. It was, it, you know, late at night when there weren't other people around, I don't feel like he actually planned to abduct her that night. It just sort of all fell into place to happen that night. Mm-hmm. But I do feel that he was escalating mm-hmm. and, and her, you know, taking the coworker to the hospital, just one more indication of another man that she had feelings for, you know, in his deluded mind. Okay. Okay. Why do you think he only called when mom was home? Because that's who he wanted to talk to. This was maintaining his connection with Dorothy was to hear her mother's voice because they sounded alike. There he was didn't want to hear dad. That dad knew him. That perhaps through the head shop. So. You don't think so? Okay. I, well, and, and maybe peripherally, but not well. No, it was the head shop owner that knew this guy. Uh-huh. Um, and, and maybe they had met a time or two and, and that, that does resonate, but I don't feel like that was the main reason. The main reason was he wanted to hear Vera's voice because she sounded like Dorothy. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Well, I am grateful for her family that her remains were found. Of course. Me too. That's so that there's than- some closure for them. Yeah. Better than no closure. But what a sad, sad case mm. for her family and for everybody that loved her. Cases like this is exactly why stalking laws became the norm. Uh-huh. Uh, we had to have stalking laws because even now it's pretty hard to prosecute a stalking case. But before we had a law for it, there was absolutely nothing you could do. People could call you up and say whatever they wanted to on to you on the phone. There was no law against that. There was no law about following you. If they didn't actually harm you or or even threaten you, 
what can, what are they going to do? You know? Yeah. And I know that I've, I've worked stalking cases through domestic violence. I know how hard they are to prove and prosecute. Um, but at least there's some law in place now to use in a situation yeah. like this back then it, they wouldn't have done a thing for her if she had called the police. They, they couldn't have legally. There just wasn't anything they could do. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad that times have changed on that. And I'm sure it is yeah. cases exactly like this that help push that kind of legislation forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've heard others, you know, stories similar when I was studying stalking and working on stalking, particularly in school. This was uh, not this case. I've never heard this case, but other cases like it that, that did result in the murder of someone mm-hmm. Yeah, that are the kinds of things that, you know, made the law have to look at. This is something we have to we have to put some laws in effect for because we have no recourse. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. OK, well. There you have it. That is the murder of Dorothy Jane Scott and her unsolved case. So, Christy, thank you. That was awesome. I really resonate with what you said there. And, you know, all the love to her family. I know her folks might not even be here anymore. They're probably not. But but her son, I'm sure. Yeah. He's actually born the same year as, well, he was born one year between you and I. Yeah. Yeah. He's about our age. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that he's lived with this his whole life. Yep. Yeah, that's that's awful. For sure. Alrighty. Well, this has been another episode of True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. If you are watching on YouTube, please like, comment, uh, or subscribe. dislike, you know, whatever. <laughs> subscribe, please. Mm-hmm. There'll be lots more coming, as always. Uh, if you're listening uh, over any of our podcast platforms, uh, thank you for being here with us. Yeah. We always appreciate all of our listeners. And also, of course, we have a Patreon, and that is True Crime Paranormal with Psychic Sisters. You can always subscribe to our Patreon. You just basically become a little sponsor. So you pay a little bit every month to help support the work that we're doing. And also, you get a little extra content that way. So kind of a fun thing. We like Patreon a lot. So Mm -hmm. we want to thank you guys so much for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another case. So Take care. You have been listening to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. Bye. Take care. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.